Alright, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you January 18th, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan podcast, where we're all about empowerment through knowledge. So we're recording this on MLK Day on January 16th, so we thought we'd actually talk about racial inequality in the U.S. and how it's affecting the economy. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Stephen Ngao. Thank you, Dallas. It's a pleasure to be on once again. I'm really excited to jump on board with this episode with you. In this episode, we're going to go over how we're thinking of racism and racial inequality, the events of racial inequality that are taking place in America today, and why it's a problem, and then batting back and forth some of the potential causes and solutions for those problems. So just to start it off, in light of Martin Luther King's celebrated birthday, I just wanted to read a quote by the man. The arc of the moral compass is long, but it bends towards justice. So yeah, that's just something, a personal quote that I like to go by every now and then. And the seek refuge in it when times are challenging. And I think anybody that's interested in, in having a, a comprehensive moral attitude galvanized would find inspiration, or at least I hope would find inspiration in that quote by the late MLK Jr. Okay, so then when we're talking about racism and racial inequality, Stephen, why don't you give us a little bit of your perspective and where you're coming from? Sure. So just to give you guys a little bit of perspective, my name is Stephen Ngao. I'm a first-generation African-American. My parents immigrated here specifically to California in the 70s for education. And after having worked for a few oil companies, my father and my mother ended up having children. And so I'm one of the firstborn. And we lived in Southern California for a few years before moving to the Middle East, where my father worked for another oil company there for about 20 years. And so in terms of my perspective on race, I understood and acknowledged race. I remember going over our lessons in elementary school about notable African-American figures or just civil rights activists in general. But for me personally, I didn't really acknowledge race on a new level until I came back to the States. My formative years I spent in the Middle East, when it was time for high school, I came back to the States. I attended boarding school and college in New England. And that's when I really saw race being a divisive force in society. I remember one of my first memories of boarding school was going to the school cafeteria and just seeing the association, how different, like all the Asian kids would hang out with each other, all the white kids would hang out with each other, all the black kids would hang out with all each other. And that just didn't make sense to me at the time because having lived in Saudi Arabia in a unique setting where we had almost like a gumbo pot of cultures, I had friends who were from all sorts of the spectrum in terms of the Middle East, their parents from either from Lebanon or, or Syria or Egypt. And friends from America as well, expats. And I was just so used to that diversity that so that when I came back to the States, I saw that diversity was racially charged. And it had took me maybe about a year and a half of high school to really get comfortable with my understanding and my role and my niche specifically in America. And I think just from understanding and acknowledging the history that we've been through, not just as a people, but as, as a civilization, I think that really puts a better perspective on how to deal with race relations as objective as you can. Because these things, I mean, I wasn't born this way. I walk down the street and people automatically have these predeterminations about me. So it took a lot for me to acknowledge that and how to break that down by assessing people for their character and not for the color of their skin. It seems like you had a different experience when you went from Saudi Arabia and came to the U.S. There was like a different experience concerning race. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, I was really infatuated with the culture that African-Americans had established here, especially like in the music scene. I relied a lot on music and different forms of media to understand race because a lot of artists and poets would express it in, in very poignant ways. And it gave me some essence of solace, but I still had trouble connecting with the everyday person. And so as a kid growing up in California, I didn't have kids because children are always like in that dreamlike state. You don't really think about it. Like, yeah, my parents would talk to me about it, but I didn't really acknowledge it until I came here on my own and had to learn different things from different people and how to be my own person as well as comfortable in my own skin. And that was in the high school time frame? Yeah. So luckily for me, New England is, it's a pretty open-minded area. I mean, I had folks who came from all across the country and all across the world just to go to school. And we talk about these different aspects of race because that's just what the environment was. You know, it's, it's, it's a higher learning area. So it's just meant to break down all these different constructs that keep us frozen in, in, in certain mind states. And so I think if it was anywhere else, I probably would have had a harder time adjusting to it. But because it was school, I knew that this was something I had to learn to grow out of. So I think that was my challenge is being a young adolescent, coming into my own man by myself and just acknowledging race as an issue historically and critically. So then when it comes to what you think of or what you mean by racism and racial inequality, what comes to mind for you? I think as humans, we all have this essence of how to be critical of something and judge it. And so like just you see a string of judgments occur. And so with racism, it's like you can assess someone by their look just ostensibly, either by their look or their name or their appearance, and you and you run to these judgments without giving them a fair chance of what their character is about. Maybe you guys connect about the same subject matter that you're studying in school, or maybe you guys have the same passion career-wise. But just to say that, oh, they're a different color or a different ethnicity or different whatever for me, so I have to place them in this box while I place myself in this different box. And I think what gets tricky and what really me, what really defines racism is when you have a preference for one over the other, instead of having an equal sense, an equal platform. And that's not always easy. It just takes time for people to understand. I think what complicates that even more is that when it comes to inequality, there's forms of inequality that are natural in the world, sometimes in a positive manner and sometimes in a negative manner. I mean, it's pretty clear that on average, black men tend to be taller than other races. So then they tend to be selected for basketball, for example, and be better at basketball because they're taller. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that in selecting black men for basketball if they're already taller. The point that I was getting at is just that there are natural forms of inequality when it comes to race. But I wouldn't say that is a form of racism because... What I'm trying to get at there is the difference between natural inequality and intentional oppression. Right, right. That's a great point. And so part of racism, in my mind, is a result of internalizing inequality, which is perceived or real, among races, and then perpetuating it with intentional oppression. Wow, I really like how you place that. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. That's also something that gets tricky to even acknowledge in its own. And I think a big reason is how kids are brought up how morals are, are taught in the household and how families are understood, how families understood race themselves. Not to get too personal, but some stories my parents would tell me as a kid, I, I'd, I'd believe them to the teeth. And then as I got older, I was like, wait a minute, that can't always be true, right? They don't always think about us this way, or we don't always think about them that way. And so I, I think also that while that's a great point to bring up, is sometimes we're not even self-conscious of some of the things that we're perpetuating. 
the types of oppressive thoughts or practices that we're perpetuating or grandfathering for our, our kids or future. Right. Societally, if we reinforce stereotypes to perpetuate them. So racial inequality does become a real thing when it comes to economic impact. And the best way we can assess that is if we look at four discriminatory areas of practice in hiring, in education, in housing, and in the criminal justice system. Just to start from the bottom, today most folks know that there's a 25% chance, a stronger chance that an African-American male would get harassed or just criticized by law enforcement or end up behind bars versus that of a white male. And historically, we've seen a certain trend of recidivism where even if we're given a chance to be reintroduced into society, because we haven't seen those types of investment to mitigate the, the crime and the poverty rates, it's like we end up repeating this process of going back into prison. If you've seen the movie Fences with Denzel Washington, it's interesting because as much as it does talk about race, it really was meant to talk about family values. And so I think that by focusing on family values, and help mitigate some of these issues when it comes to addressing issues of criminal justice and how we always end up back playing into the system's hand. And I think that's because if you take a father away from the household and the mother has to do all the work, you see a lot of these consistent trends of single parenting. It gives the kid an idea of, well, my dad's not here and, and this is who's going to raise me, my mom. And so while they'll have a strong relationship with the mother or at least have a certain affinity or respect for how he or she was brought up in the household, that fatherless spirit kind of haunts and ends up being grandfathered into the next generation, because that is what happened in the movie. The father had previously spent a stint in prison, came back, and one of his, his oldest son was, they were having an argument, and he was wondering, how come you weren't around for like the last 15 years of my life? And the, and the kid was in his 20s, but he didn't know that his father had spent time in prison. And so ironically, the son that was worried about his upbringing and his father not being there, he also ends up falling in his father's footsteps and getting into prison. And so that just reminded me, I mean, it's just like a microcosm of the whole problem that's happened is you have these practices, whether it's largely due to government having that responsibility of introducing guns and drugs into certain areas where you've seen crime rise, poverty rise, violence increase, and there hasn't been a subsistent effect of wholesome household within the African-American community. And so that has also led to the rise in, in our population in, this, in behind bars in the criminal justice system. I think it's all connected. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that the family unit is huge. It's such a long string of dominoes going from Africans being abducted from Africa, brought over to the U.S. as slaves, not given education, not given assets or the ability to acquire wealth. And then all of a sudden are eventually set free and then, okay, no, now go and be free when you're not starting from an equal footing. Yeah, just to piggyback off what you just said. So starting off on an equal footing, you look at housing. I mean, owning a home is such a patriotic thing in our country. And a lot of people take pride in, in having home ownership, having a story for your children to build of their own, like a place for their books, for their toys, for their clothes. It's a warm feeling. And what we've seen, even though slavery had been abolished, there was still an evolution of racial discrimination in the 20th century with redlining. From the 1930s to the 1960s, you had a lot of African-American potential homebuyers were getting declined from investing in certain areas. So redlining was a practice that was underscored by federal government to offer conventional lending tools 
to prospective homeowners. And why it was termed redlining is because they would section off certain areas so that African-Americans were purposely misled into thinking that they could invest in those areas. But when it came to anyone who was not of African-American descent, you had a lot of areas for them to invest in their homes, or at least for the banks to offer them where they could invest in homes. And so on the map, it was either red, blue, or green. And so when it came to prospective homeowners, African-Americans were often redlined because they would save. And when I say they, I mean the local government, those who impose the zoning rights, the zoning ordinances that the banks have to go off of, because it's the banks and the insurance companies that justify their rates based on where the zone ordinances are placed. And oftentimes the zoning laws were dictated not by income levels, which you would assume would be most logic, but it just grew into this culture of zoning based on racial lines. And so that's where you see this trend in the 20th century of not having access, even though slavery had been abolished, we achieved equality, we weren't getting land ownership. And so when you don't have access to land ownership, you can't really grandfather your, your, your legacy, so to speak. It's kind of like you have to be a long-term laborer, if that makes sense. You can't really have an asset to own that can make money for yourself. It's like you're a serf instead of a landlord. Serf, man, that's a good word. That's spot on. That's a great word to put it. Housing is just another form of asset that if you're not able to acquire assets or begin to acquire assets, then it's hard to begin to acquire wealth. That's correct. Yeah, so we've talked about housing. We've talked about criminal justice and Two important things, especially in the future, are hiring and education. Why I say hiring is because we live in a world that is dominated by economic activity, economic warfare, so to speak. And so I think a lot of what we do in the private sector will matter. So the rest of society will mold itself to see how we develop ourselves to be a safe entity or a safe or a sovereign nation for our kids to grow up in. And job creation from innovation should be offered on an equal platform, whereas you don't have to be the Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs who dropped out. This is what I was talking about with one of my coworkers. I, I live in San Francisco. And so we see a lot of things that the tech companies have done to improve and change. And she's also African-American. And we're just wondering, why is this such a mystery for African-Americans to be involved in the tech sector, you know, such a fast growing and coming industry? Why is it hard for us to come out and be innovative? And we, we brought up a point uh, about how folks like Bill Gates, they had well-off families, or at least they had strong support from the family base. Even Steve Jobs, you know, he made Apple from his parents' garage. So I think if you just root things back to how the family, how the upbringing occurs, then you can have a more positive impact in the long run. So I think hiring is a big thing. When I was a kid, I, I remember I'd ask my parents why they named me my name, you know, not just like a full out African name. And one of the reasons that they were concerned was because of how I'd be treated when applying for jobs. So that's hiring. And then how I'd be treated when applying for college. And so that's where I think racism gets perpetuated, but like inadvertently, so to speak. It's an interesting challenge. I mean, I'm at a place now where I've applied to different jobs. People are actually interested in, in my background because it doesn't look like a John Doe type of application. It's like they've received so many John Does. So I'm actually, I'm proud of my heritage and how I get to use that to stand out and play a card. And it gives them, the potential employer, a chance to think outside the box with my expertise and not just hire me for diversity's sake or affirmative action's sake. And with education, what I was talking about earlier with my background is I went to private school in New England and... That was just a different environment. I mean, I'd watch all these films like American Pie about the culture behind public school, but I never got to experience that personally. 
but from having gone to private school, I think that's a really great way to put kids in an environment where they can all be on an equal platform. Most of the time, it's students move from their home countries or home states to neutral or, or foreign turf that's neutral to everybody. And so you kind of have this equal playing field of, well, we're all in the middle of nowhere, so we might as well just get to know each other. So with education, I think the big problem is funding and how these schools are using their curriculum to educate kids. I think teachers don't get enough in the wages. And I think that is also based on how they get funded as an organization. And it's normally based on the socioeconomic development of the neighborhood or a respective municipality. And if you're in a more affluent neighborhood, like if you're in Beverly Hills, for example, your local school will probably get a lot of access to different things and have strong resources. But if you're somewhere in Compton or another neighborhood that doesn't have strong uh, socioeconomic standpoint, you're not going to be on the high pecking order when it comes to the federal government or just any local government offering that municipality, that educational improvement in its resources. That's what I was trying to get at is with the public education system. You always need to have a system of check and balances because I know that historically schools oftentimes they get funding based on merit. And a lot of times teachers would be under pressure because their wages are so challenged is they would manipulate the scoring so that it'd make their school, their students look more outstanding. And so that, that would give strong incentive for the government to invest in that school. But oftentimes that wasn't really the case. The students really weren't learning anything. And then you kind of have that perpetuating into today's times. There's a movie in the 1980s based on a true story in Los Angeles called Stand and Deliver, and it takes place in East L.A., and it talks about Chicanos, Mexican-Americans going to school in this neighborhood that was ridden with crime and poverty. And there was this one teacher, I think he was a history teacher. He realized that a lot of students did not like to go to school because they'd rather spend their time out in the streets gangbanging or just playing hooky. And he saw that as a, as a genuine concern, you know, in terms of having an equal and fair share in America. He realized that his students were not getting that. And so he went out of his way and they were gearing up to do this massive test or performance test to, to evaluate the school, whether or not they deserved funding or not. And so the teacher went out of his way. He would host tutor sessions after class and even on weekends in his own home to teach the kids math just so they knew well enough to pass the test and so that they can go to college and have an equal chance. I think them having him as a teacher was inspiring for them because he was able to tell them on their history of we've never had an equal chance in the first place. This country talks about having equal chance for all, but not all of us have those equal chances. You know, those natural inequalities that you're talking about earlier, Dallas, versus that intentional oppression. The teacher, he really touched the kids' hearts, inviting them to his home, first of all, just to teach math. Having that family sense of approach to help mitigate whatever misconceptions that those young students at the time had about racism and how they were infecting their lives. Okay, so then let's get at some of the root causes of racial inequality in the U.S. in terms of the economy and some of the solutions that you think are available. So I think I'd have to go back to housing. I think some of the root causes with housing was the threat of having someone that was not of the same background of you owning a home and having an equal chance. I think people are intimidated by the fact of everyone having a level playing field some people like to have their positions of power. And I think that is a dangerous thing. See, how I would resolve that challenge is correlating it with the whole idea of philanthropy. You have all these wealthy millionaires and billionaires. They earn a lot of money, but they know that they really need to have a strong impetus to give back to the community because it's logical. If the money is flowing a certain way and it gets stuck in this one corner, 
it's, it's like the human body. There's a blood clot. You're going to have to go to the hospital or to the doctor or get some medicine to fix the blood clot. It has to be this continuous flow. And so with not having access to housing, we don't have, like you saying, that specialized type of asset to own and acquire and, and uh, evolve our socioeconomic standpoint. So implicitly, it's like the causes for not getting access, fair access to buying a home is like you're still saying you're still not equal. So we're still going to give you no access or limited access to owning a home because it is such a patriotic thing to own a home. And I think that is a cause for a lot of the inequalities that you still see today. We don't feel like we have a say because we don't feel like we have turf in America. I'd like to even go back even further from it to really look at the genesis of the problem. When it comes to African-Americans in the U.S., there's a specific history to it in that Africans were kidnapped from Africa and brought over to the U.S. and made to be slaves and then not given education or assets. And then eventually were given rights of a quote-unquote free person, but then completely starting not from an equal footing. But just trying to get at the root causes of racism, some of the ways that I think there's some originating sources of inequality in life, you have knowledge and technology, skills and abilities, aesthetics, and then even social nepotism. These are the areas that I think of as potential sources, originating sources of inequality in life. So for example, on the knowledge and technology side, in our specific case, you had whites who went over to Africa with ships and guns, and they found Africans with spears. So the whites thought, we have better knowledge and technology here, so we were superior. Or I don't know if they would have thought about it like that, but they're basically just like, we have the ability to dominate them. And then in terms of skills and abilities, you have Olympic athletes usually have more innate ability than the average person. Some people might argue that, but I would say that's probably often the case. So that can lead to inequality. Or in the example that we talked about, on average, black men can be taller than other races and therefore they naturally have the ability to be better at basketball than maybe other people. Or even on aesthetics, you have someone like Brad Pitt or whoever becomes famous because of his looks. So that creates a certain inequality. And then in terms of the social nepotism, that's kind of a natural phenomenon of social dynamics where if your family member is in a position of power, they'll be more inclined to try to help you get into a position versus like some stranger. And so that can create inequality. So if we take that back to the example where you had African-American slaves who are now liberated but have no assets, and then you have white people who are already in positions of power... And then just by natural process, when their kids are growing up, you say, I want to help out my kid and get him into a position of power. But African-Americans who there were none in power, so that there was no social nepotism to build on. African-Americans had nobody in power to help them ascend to power as well. Next generation. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point to bring up because the last eight years we've had President Obama be the closest thing to that, you know, having that social nepotism, as you put it. But he's also played a very conscious card, a very diplomatic card in how he's always making sure to speak to America as a whole and not just to black America. But black America knows that there is a certain essence of his presence, at least in the last eight years, that has made an incentive for them to want to have that access to social nepotism. At the same time, from studying him and the way he presents himself, he's very cautious to offer that social nepotism because it can drive up that sense of inequality that you just mentioned. So I, I think that's a really good point that you bring up. Yeah, but again, 
I think it's pretty clear in the case of African Americans that inequality is originating in the whole slavery history. But then basically it comes down in my mind to education and then assets. And so in terms of the lack of education, here's an example. If you took two people, if you gave a 12-year-old all the money in the world, but he doesn't yet have knowledge or wisdom, he's probably going to squander it. But then if you take a 30-year-old and you give them no money, but then you give them all the knowledge in the world, he's probably going to find a way to excel over time. So it's just a way to look at it. Knowledge is very powerful. And if you don't give people an education or if they don't have access to education, money is only a secondary problem if you don't have education. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I do have this personal beef with how people see money today. We've become such a consumerist society. Money, yeah, it could solve problems, but it, it doesn't really get you anywhere. Like We still use it. It's a medium. We use it to do other things with. It personally doesn't have any value to us. I have to go to a grocery store and exchange my dollars for food. I can't eat money to have survival. So I think that's a good point you bring up because I was reading this article in The Atlantic by Ta-Nehisi Coates. He, he talks about the case for reparations in reference to the social cost that has been caused from the damage of the Jim Crow era, Jim Crow laws, and from slavery itself. And the challenge is, how do you really fix that? You know, you can't just write a check and call it a day because that money could be spent in a short amount of time, but how it's spent is more important. An example of that is you have NFL players who make huge salaries, and then 10 years later, they end up bankrupt and have no money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. How it's spent is the education needs to be enforced. So I totally agree with you on that. And that actually is a pretty sad case because athletes are taking advantage of what we were talking about earlier is the natural inequalities to advance themselves in society to a certain level, socioeconomic level. And then because of not having that foundation, the basic fundamental foundation of financial literacy, it's where the problem occurs again in, in losing those resources and not knowing how to invest instead of spend. In Rich Dad Poor Dad, he talks about how to create wealth. Being wealthy is different from being rich. Wealth is more of a long-term thing. Rich is just a one-and-done type of deal. That always stuck with me. Make an effort to invest and earn wealth and not just make an effort to become rich. I think that's been a challenge with Americans. It's a lot of different one-hit wonders or just like these internet stars make a lot of money and then poof, disappear. But wealth is something that is a challenge and it takes time to develop. Right, or how you hear about lottery winners ending up broke because they don't know how to manage the assets. But reemphasizing the point, the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 didn't all of a sudden give blacks equal opportunity across the board. Oh, certainly not. It gave rights and freedom, but they're still starting out with very little assets and education, and that had a knock-on effect, which still lasts to today. Yeah, I mean... So the Emancipation Proclamation was literally just the statement where President Lincoln was acknowledging that slavery is bad. But that was at a time when the states that were thriving from slavery weren't legally bound to that order. And oftentimes the northern states that were bound to that order would just sell their slaves to southern plantations. And so that was almost kind of like a Trojan horse type of deal where it was said just for lip service, but it wasn't actually practiced in full. And so it wasn't until 100 years later until we went through the whole civil rights movement. And now, like, here we are 50 years later from that, and racial inequality is still a big challenge for us to deal with. I think that's something where I feel like the private sector, cooperation with the private sector and government can help mitigate that. Actually, that's interesting because I was just thinking of minimum wage laws and how I actually see them as very insidious because they marketed as a way to help the less fortunate people. 
But in reality, we have what we were just discussing about the knock-on effects of the pre-Civil War slavery area. And then in 1938, you have minimum wage laws put into place through the Fair Labor Standards Act. But you still had African Americans who had way less education than whites or other people. Who is it that earns minimum wages? People who have less education and less skills. And by extension, that was naturally going to be, more often than not, African Americans. So they get priced out of the market because if you have minimum wage laws which are increasing the minimum wages, companies are going to be incentivized to hire people with more skills to get more value out of the labor that they're paying for. So the way I see it, you have African Americans being priced out of the market and not being able to get that initial experience and income that they should be getting from those lower skilled jobs. Right. No, that's a great point. Just to phrase it like that, to being priced out of the market where we have less of a chance. And furthermore, just to sell the point is if a business has to pay more for its employees, for its payroll, it may have a, a better incentive to learn how to automate just to evade paying more in terms of minimum wages. If you think there isn't equality today, there certainly wasn't equality back in 1938. And if African-Americans weren't able to get those lower level work experience jobs, they're not being able to get on that first step to climb the socioeconomic ladder. So I see that as, as a major historical problem. The whole slavery knock-on effect, but then even things like the minimum wage law, these are all contributory factors into causing these problems. Right. I certainly agree. And I think just to underscore the point, education would really help pave the way for new heights. I think we would agree that education is one of the main solutions to overcoming racial inequality going forward. So what should be done in terms of education? I think there should be a different type of approach to educating people. We're so used to this linear format of in the classroom having one person lecture to you. And while that can be impactful for some, perhaps not for all, if there is a more dynamic approach in teaching the information, if the students could have a more dialectic approach of open dialogue and cooperative means of teaching, improve the ratio between pupil and teacher, I think that could have a more holistic impact and having different forms of media, such as music and film, to help students learn and acknowledge certain concepts and actually apply these concepts to real world events. Technology makes things, certain things so easy. You know, you can shoot a video in several seconds and have something to show to people. And so I think that should be incentivized for students to use in the classroom instead of just making selfies if they're sitting in the bathroom ditching class or using music as a tool to help improve people's memorization of facts of history or of complex knowledge if you can break it down in, in rhyming schemes and formats. I think the way that people of different ethnicities internalize information or just experiences in general, I feel like a lot of Black people that I've met in the States, if I had to have a conversation with an African-American brother I see walking down the street, we could talk about sports, for example. Not everybody that I meet that's Black is into sports or into music, but taking advantage of our, our commonalities instead of describing our differences can make things help. If I had to teach somebody what the difference is between an asset and an expense, and if I was just to tell it the way my teachers taught it to me, I'm sure I could do a good job in, in having them understand it. But I know that I could sell it if I could give an analogy or some sort of real-world application train of thought for them to understand. It's like if they really love basketball, and I could put it in terms of if you have a good skill with your jump shot, that's an asset. But if you keep turning the ball over, that's an expense. 
And I think having those radical approaches to improving education can help people contribute to the dialogue and have a more inclusive dialogue. I don't think we're paying attention to the different experiences that these young folks are having with what they're listening to, to what they're watching, and using those things to infuse into the classroom. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of speaking in a language that the recipient can understand and identify with. In the end, I agree. For someone to want to learn, they have to be spoken to in a language that they understand and appreciate. I think the key to transferring education and knowledge to the next generation is to be interested and excited about learning and knowledge. And if a kid isn't excited about learning, then they're not really going to be interested in learning. And so I think culture plays a key part in that. And so a thought that I have is that making it a part of African-American culture where education is something to be desired and exciting. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point to bring up, having culture to be a, a leading benchmark in how we acknowledge education and improving our socioeconomic standards. Yeah, that not only acknowledges education, but esteems and puts education on a pedestal that African-Americans look and say, I want to learn more. I want to be highly educated. Yeah, totally. See, it's funny because growing up, my dad would always tell me, as long as you have an education, they can't take that away from you. And I was so used to hearing that, that when I started living on my own, I realized that that's not a common thought process for a lot of people, especially a lot of people of color. We always think that the system is against us. And so we disincentivize ourselves to learn more and read more and change the globe. I'm always reminded of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's an African-American author, obviously known for his talents on the basketball court, legendary NBA player. But he is a scholar and he writes often. I know he's been writing for the Washington Post recently. And he always preaches that is having an education is a good foundation for developing yourself as a human being. And I think that is something that if we can implement that into our culture in terms of the African-American or just the African diaspora in general, is there's a lot of folks, young folks in places in Africa that don't have proper access to education and healthcare and financial services that would really help expedite the learning curve in, in terms of improving our impact on the socioeconomic ladder. Okay, so let's just wrap it up. In terms of a final thought in trying to create that in African-American culture of esteeming education, any thoughts on the methodology there? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. I'll start out the way I finished. Dr. Martin Luther King judged a man by not the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I think if we go back and assess the dynamics of what makes things occur to be of a natural inequality versus what is implementing internal oppression, we can learn how to discern use proper judgment to discern what's healthy and what's unhealthy in terms of acknowledging race relationship with one another. And having a thought process that's based on education as a tool to improve the livelihood of our culture is something that should be fought for more. It's something that I fight for and using different tools, whether it's in the private sector or within government, to improve our education awareness and, and improve what we think about education to help solve some of these issues that we've seen in these core areas of hiring, of housing, education, of criminal justice. I think the same thing is true for African-Americans as is true for almost anyone in society is that people have to be empowered and take control of the situation themselves. And in that sense, empowerment is going to come through knowledge. And so whether it's for African-Americans or others, I think it's the same is we need education. Education is going to bring that empowerment.
it comes back to a culture of encouraging and esteeming education. In the end, education can bridge that divide between racial inequality. I agree. I guess this is kind of an auspicious timing of doing this episode, but in light of today being MLK Day, I think it would be most prudent for our listeners out there to acknowledge that he wasn't just the only person that fought for progress. He fought based on a litany of people's struggles, hopes, and aspirations and challenges. And so understanding that it doesn't take any special person, it just takes the ordinary person and having a good chance of educating yourself to empower yourself and not only yourself, but the community that you're involved in is the way that we should live our lives going forward. And then tapping into your God-given potential, you can realize great things as we've seen through people like Martin Luther King. Amen. So we want to thank you for joining us this time and we'll catch you next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. Amen.